It's a fabulous and rainy Tuesday kind of evening. And tonight, we're going to kickstart a very incredible conversation on the show that focuses on the idea of pivoting, taking your business from the initial idea through all its turmoils and getting it to where you actually sometimes don't even envision it getting to. Today is the day that comes before International Women's Day. And so we're going to have an all-female panel to join us for this conversation. I do hope you sit back and enjoy it because it's going to get really, really interesting. You're welcome to City Trends. My name is Philip Ashon and City Trends is sponsored by ALX Africa. Yes, indeed. The job market is changing rapidly. One is one in every three jobs is currently tech related. Are you ready for that kind of workforce of the future? In partnership with Mastercard Foundation, ALX brings you fully funded programs in software engineering courses, data science, data analysis, Salesforce administration work, and AWS, Adobe Web Services. Um, Cloud Practitioner will start your journey today within a tech space by visiting alxafrica.com. And to harness the brightest female minds on the continent, this soft engineering cohort is opening to only female applicants. Yes, indeed, to harness the brightest female minds on the continent, this soft engineering cohort is opening to only female applicants. All applications have begun, so make sure you send yours through. Visit alxafrica.com today. And let's get straight into the show. Share your thoughts and opinions on the show via the WhatsApp number 054-998-6996. Tweet at us using hashtag CityTrend. All right, so it's a day to International Women's Day, and it is time for us to talk technology. But in with a bit of a twist, actually, we are today going to start off or kick off um, conversations around what it means to start up a business, in this case, one that has a unique focus on tech. And when you get to that point where you know it's just not going well, you need to, to make a dash in the next direction. What are some of the things that goes through your mind that you need to consider before you make that very all-important decision? And um, today, my, my, my panel will be helping me to understand from their unique perspectives of the businesses that um, they've been involved in and been associated with. They will be helping us to get a better sense of, of what this is all about. So I'm just going to um, have, have my guests introduce themselves and then we're going to dive straight into the studio. Um, so let, let's start off with Melissa. Melissa, hi, how, how are you? A quick introduction to, to, the, to the audience. Hi, good day. My name is Melissa Nsia. I'm the director of portfolio from Mest Africa. Good to see you all. Good, good to connect with you as well, uh, Melissa. And Regina, quick introductions. Um, hello, my name is Regina Honu. I'm the CEO of Chonko Academy, which is a coding and human-centered academy with a focus on bridging the gender gap. Um, and I am a trained software developer, a technology enthusiast, and a gender advocate. And last but not the least, Larissa. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Larissa Kofi, and I am uh, 
the Education and Skills Program Lead at the MasterCard Foundation based in Accra, Ghana. And I also am um, the founder of Levers in Heels, um, a platform I created to highlight and give a voice to African women in STEM. I've been doing this for a decade now, and I'm really excited to be on this panel to talk women in tech. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, let's start off with a veteran on this show, Regina. Um, mm -hmm. we, we've had several conversations in the past around um, um, what you do and around women in, in tech generally, and basically around the running of business. Um, and from, from the moment when you began all those years ago to where you are right now, um, give us a sense of, has there been a point in time in that journey where you've had to completely switch around what your business plan actually was? Have, has there been a point in time where you had to completely change your approach to what you thought you were trying to build in order to even, for example, stay in business? Um, no, so I haven't had to totally change my plan in order to survive. I have evolved the model in order to be competitive um, and meet the needs of uh, a growing um, sort of customer base or meet the needs of our evolving world and our evolving digital economy. So understanding that sometimes what you design on paper, when you take it into the field, it's a totally different result comes out. So what we have been able to do, quickly adapt. I mean, COVID also brought its own and nuances to how you run businesses. So we had to quickly pivot to online. Understanding that our demographic that we work with, which is women and girls, um, had issues such as access to devices, cost of data. So we've had to be resilient and also quickly adaptable. But I think in today's world, that's just how you run business. I guess so. But I mean, when, when, when within the fraternity of the ecosystem, there are conversations around pivots. Do, do you think you do you think the evolution that you speak about fits into that traditional that, that, that traditional understanding of what it means to pivot? Yeah, so I think the first conversation that comes out when you talk about innovation is definitely scale. Um, and once you have the scale conversation, you look at pivoting, right? And so for us, um, we have had to scale. And in order to scale, we've had to pivot some of our solutions and some of our ideas. And we've had to maybe downsize to one thing so that we'll be able to pivot the other thing. Uh, so definitely when it comes to the innovation landscape, you are constantly thinking about, okay, how do we scale this? What does pivoting look like? How do we stay true to the problem that we are trying to solve? Uh, but make sure that, you know, we are able to use uh, all the resources that we need to make a bigger impact or, or, or like do more. So definitely we've had to pivot in order to scale our innovative ideas. And, and is there, is there a, an example, for example, that, uh, you know, something that pops up in your mind about uh, an occasion or a circumstance where, where that was crucial? And how did, you, how did you work through that? So I'm going to quickly go back to the COVID scenario because we've had conversations about taking our classes online, but we were always concerned about our demographics. So we were like, oh, we don't think women are ready to go online. We feel like they would prefer in-person in training. And what we discovered was, first of all, uh, once we started to scale our programs nationally, 
women wanted to go online. You know, they wanted the convenience of being able to use their smartphones or hotspot their smartphones to their laptop to be able to learn and, and the convenience of not having to move around. So we saw that we got more women interested in learning online. We got more women taking our programs. And then we even saw that our market was not just Ghana. And so we were getting women from um, other African countries. So before, when we hadn't really thought about taking our idea Pan-African, you know, and having to sort of pivot to be able to like address the fact that we couldn't do as many in-persons as we wanted because of COVID, made us understand that we were thinking small, you know, and that being able to scale allowed us to um, take our products or our services into new markets, allowed us to reach a larger demographic, you know, and so we quickly had to think innovatively how we can do training online and make sure that it's effective and impactful. Rihanna, thank you. Thank you for, for, for that insight there. Larissa, let me, let me jump to you because um, when, when we spoke earlier, you, you mentioned the fact that you had actually been in connection and had conversations with quite a number of um, women within the tech space. And so I just want to find out from you, um, from those, some of those conversations and those interactions and the work that, for example, you do with MasterCard, have there been any tech businesses that you've had an interaction with, which I've had to do that traditional pivot? And, you know, what were some of the key sort of learnings that you, you had to, you walked away from those conversations with? Yeah, so um, as someone who has spent um, a lot of time working with, you know, tech entrepreneurs and advocating for their success, um, I think I know, I know a thing or two about, you know, navigating change and uncertainty. And to me, pivoting means being adaptable and flexible in the face of, you know, unexpected challenges and being willing to shift gears where necessary. And um, whether we are talking about, you know, our personal or professional lives, pivoting requires us to be resilient and creative. Um, it, it means taking stock of our strengths and weaknesses and being open to new opportunities that may not have been on our radar before. But um, perhaps more importantly, pivoting requires us to stay true to ourselves and our values. And it can be easy to get caught up in the pressure to conform or to pursue a path that doesn't feel authentic. Um, but when we pivot from a place of integrity, we, we set ourselves up for, for success. Um, of course, pivoting is not always easy. And I've seen this um, through my interactions with, um, you know, a lot of women in tech, and tech entrepreneurs, and it can be uncomfortable and even scary at times. But I've, as I've learned throughout my own journey, it's often in those moments of discomfort that we grow the most. So um, if you find yourself at a crossroads wondering whether it's time to pivot, I encourage you to trust your instincts and be willing to take that leap of faith. Who knows where it may lead you? And where, where does it often lead then from you know, some of these businesses that you've had these interactions with, where, where does it often lead them? Is it always um, that they, they end up, you know, on, on, on a road to success or does it sometimes even get worse from there? So it's not always um, towards the path of, of success. 
um, sometimes it leads to, you, you also experience failure, but learning to fail, we're, we're going to talk about learning to fail properly. I think it's a critical part of, you know, the entrepreneurship journey, and it's really important in the fast-paced world of technology. And for a lot of tech entrepreneurs in Ghana, there are many ways that we can make the, pro the process of failing easier and more productive. Um, we, we need to create a culture of transparency and openness around failure. And um, I think many entrepreneurs in Ghana feel ashamed or embarrassed to talk about their failures, which can lead to isolation and lack of support. And so we really need to you know, create safe spaces for uh, entrepreneurs to discuss their failures and learn from each other. And uh, we can help to break down these barriers and encourage you know, a, more an open, a more open and collaborative um, tech ecosystem. We will indeed talk talk more about feeling and that culture of feeling and what how how a lot more of the technology entrepreneurs within the space can feel more positively, um, you know, as as the years as the years go by. Melissa, um, you 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 work with this. You literally sort of you know wake up and go to sleep with technology entrepreneurs, young ones. You know, and and so on and so forth, and you have a lot of interactions with them. What what are your experiences with with this with this um, with this buzzword, if if I should call it that, this pivoting buzzword that we seem to be playing around with so much? Uh yeah. <laughs> um, I think my other co-panelists have talked quite extensively about it, so I don't want to repeat what they've shared. Um. I've worked extensively with startups, with scale-ups, with SMEs, with large conglomerates. And pivoting to me is that synonymous to actually running a business, right? It's the most normal thing in business, right? Continuing to evaluate your business, um, testing out new ideas and theories, making decisions based on the data you're getting sometimes causes you to pivot, right? It sometimes leads you to either pivot based on the information you're getting. And I think um, the best companies actually design their business model with the ability to be able to adapt in mind, right? Um, and I think the, the, the true test much of the time of a business being able to last, the test of time is being able to pivot or being able to adapt and to be agile, right? Um, depending on what the market is needing, right? And depending on the data that you're getting back from your operations as well. I see. And what, when, when you have conversations with, and I, I, I specifically want to focus on technology entrepreneurs in this conversation, when, when you have those sessions with them and they come to that point where they need to make a, you know, a shift from where they are, where they wanted to be based on you know, circumstances that are happening and, the need for them to make those shifts. What are some of the, the conversation points that you typically would be touring with them just to ensure um, you know, that in, in a certain sense, because I'm guessing that one of the key things for you is to ensure that you do stay in business even if their plan is, is, is what it's supposed to be. So what are some of the conversation points that typically come up when, when you interact with, with you know, young technology entrepreneurs or, or, or people within the space who, who are looking at making that shift to ensure that they stay in business? Well, I alluded it to I alluded a bit to this, I guess, in my first part of the conversation was just really about the data, 
right? Really about the data that's needed to be able to make the decision about pivoting. So I think that that's where the conversation always is. Um, when we're talking to founders or, you know, business owners, developers is, you know, what data are you basing your ideas on? I think that's where everything starts. Because I think when you're watching the the, the data closely, when you're continuously engaging with the market, whether it's your customers, whether it's other stakeholders, and you're, you're, you're constantly keeping your finger on the pulse of where the market is going, right? And I think that that's where the conversation always starts when we're talking with business leaders is, okay, what is the data telling you, right? And then, of course, you then now build insights from the information that you're getting. So I think we always start with, as a business, what are the key things you're looking out for, right? So what really determines success for you as a business, right? And of course, for a lot, everybody's kind of like, duh, it's profits, right? Making money, but it, it really does depend on the kind of business you're running, right? For some businesses, you're really closely looking at the numbers, right? How many users do you have? How many customers? For some businesses, you're looking more at how many people are talking about your, your solution, right? How many referrals are you getting? So there's so many different indicators to watch um, in looking at the health of your business. And I think, you know, you would pivot if you realize it for a number of reasons, right? You realize that your business is not healthy, or you do realize that the business is actually going really well and you want to ramp things up. So I think pivot, it doesn't only mean that something is not working and you're moving away from it. It could be also that something is working and you're building on it, right? Um, but you're doing that based on the data you're getting. So the first thing you want to make sure is that they're getting data from good sources. And then we work with them to kind of interpret what is this data telling us? And I think that's always the foundation of making any change or pivoting in your business. That's a very, you know, in, in, insightful bit of it, you know, because it's become associated with so much, at least from where I sit, you know, anytime that, convers that, that word comes into the conversation, it's almost as if it's like the business is failing and, you know, we have to figure out a way to survive. But from what you're saying, it's, it's actually much way more than that, you know, and it's, it's really instructive, you know, how, how, you, how you put it. But I mean, with, with the businesses that, you know, come through, come through Nest and with, you know, all the education that we tend to, to give these, these students and these businesses, um, you know, are there any, you know, businesses that have caught your attention who have come to that crossroads and have made a decision and, you know, have, have gone on to succeed or are there any others who mm -hmm. have come to that crossroad and have, you know, taken the other decision um, and, and have gone completely out of business. Are there any examples that you can you can readily point out to us? Of course, and um, you know I'll, I'll talk about both sides because this is this is the idea of a business failing. And I think the word failure is like it's just a big word for trying something out, and now you want to try something else. Like a business at the end of the day is a test, right? There, there's no business that knows for sure that we're going to succeed, and I, I don't mind what their budget line is, right? A business is a test. And I think over time, you get better, you know more about the industry. But I mean, in terms of businesses that have tried things out and closed down, of course, I have several examples of that. I'm sure many of us can think of different examples of businesses that have closed down, um, you know, over the, even the past couple of years, right, even since COVID, just because naturally, right, the market wasn't calling for whatever they were offering anymore. 
But I want to talk about a company specifically that I've been working very closely with called AgroInova. Um, and I'm going to talk about how they've pivoted, right, in a different way. So, That's so what they started their business in being able to be off takers for egg producers, right? So I have a chicken coop. I produce eggs. I don't know where to sell these eggs, but I'm producing eggs. So AgroInova comes in at that stage. We'll basically collect all of your produce and match you with a buyer. All right. So that, that's how the initial premise of the business started. But as their operations matured, right, we realized that in the egg business, right, an egg, egg is laid by a chicken. All right. Chicken are typically fed with either maize or soy um, fortified feed. OK, so there's this whole chain, right? There's this whole value chain of getting to the egg. So though a business started with, all right, how do we get the egg to the customer? Now we realize after we're exploring the value chain that there's so many other ways of capturing value with our solution. So initially we were only matching eggs to sellers, but now we're able to actually we're actually able to now also match people who produce maize and soy products with mills that are producing feed for chicken that lay eggs. Now we're able to also work with actual broiler producers to produce broiler and match them with buyers, right? So it, it, it's, it's a business that started with an initial premise. And as our operations became more mature, we realized that the same solution we're deploying to get the egg to the customer, we can use the same platform to create much more value for many more players in one value chain. So that, that's, that's another example of pivoting, right? Or growth, right? We can call that growth, but that's really kind of just changing your business model as you get more information. So that's an example that I could give um, and I, I could give several more as well. Well, 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 thank you for that. And I'll be coming to you, Melissa, to, to pick up on, on some of those other examples. Sure. Um, but Larissa, um, do, do you have any 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 of those stories? I, I think you mentioned you know, one earlier, but I don't know if you have any stories um, to share um, about businesses that have come to that crossroads and have taken a decision and it's gone really well or it's gone completely left. Yeah, um, but before I do that, I wanted to talk about um, the, the term pivoting being used as a buzzword in the tech industry. So um, I think while it's certainly important for entrepreneurs to be able to adapt and adjust their strategies as needed, the term pivoting can sometimes be overused or um, misused, leading to a lack of clarity about what it really means to pivot and um, when it's necessary to do so. But that being said, I don't think that pivoting has lost its place in the evolution of tech entrepreneurs. Um, in fact, I think that the ability to pivot is more important now than ever before, um, given the fast-paced um, nature of the tech industry and the constantly changing landscape of innovation and disruption. But um, as with any buzzword, it's important to make sure that we are using the term pivoting in a meaningful and strategic way, um, rather than simply as a, a catch-all phrase for um, any type of change or adjustment. And um, ultimately, the success of any um, entrepreneur or business depends on the ability to adapt 
evolve and pivot when necessary. But we need to make sure that we are doing so with um, intention and, and purpose. Um, and when it comes to examples of, you know, Ghanaian tech entrepreneurs who have pivoted their businesses and ended up successful, there have come across many of them. Um, but um, instead of giving maybe specific examples. I, I think Melissa has given examples already. So I'll just talk about, um, you know, what the experiences have been like um, and what their, their outcomes have been like. So uh, some of them have experienced increased revenue and profitability, um, mainly because the successful pivot has led to increased um, revenue and profitability for their startup or their business. And by responding to, you know, changing market conditions and customer needs, the company can, you know, better align its uh, products or services offering uh, with the demands of the markets, which can lead to increased sales and revenue. A pivot can also result in improved customer satisfaction, which I've seen with many of, you know, tech entrepreneurs um, by focusing on a new product or service offering or targeting a different, you know, cu customer segment. Um, the company can better meet the needs of its customers, which leads to increased um, customer loyalty and retention. And then some of them have also experienced enhanced company culture. So, um, uh, uh, by embracing change and adapting to new challenges, the company can foster a culture of innovation and agility, which um, has led to increased empl employee engagement and, and productivity. So these are some of the outcomes um, that um, these entrepreneurs have experienced based on my interaction with them. And, and it's, it's, always, it's always instructive, you know, and, and, and I think one of the biggest learnings for me from this conversation so far as the fact that you know it swings it swings both ways and yes it might be something that we keep throwing about and all of that but it's like you know um so like you said it's it's important to understand what it actually means you know so that when we do get to that point where we need to make those decisions there we we understand that it's it's a very critical decision that to be made and it's you know if it is made and done properly it can actually lead to you know something better for 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 your business i i just wanted to segue into the conversation about failure and um why um you know it's important that um, we we see failure in in the way that you know i think we discussed um just a little earlier and i'm going to start off this round with you um, um larissa why do we need to fail differently so like I mentioned earlier, I think it's really important to learn how to, to feel um, properly and then you use the term differently in this case. <laughs> so, um, yes, the term is to feel properly um, and it's, it's a critical part of you know, the entrepreneurship journey. Um, for a lot of tech entrepreneurs in Ghana, there are several ways we can make the process of feeling easier and more productive. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, we, we need to create um, an ecosystem that is very transparent and open around failure. And uh, many entrepreneurs need to feel um, open and um, not ashamed to talk about their failures, which will lead to, which often leads to isolation and, and lack of support. So um, we, we need to create safe spaces for these entrepreneurs to discuss their fail failures and learn from each other. 
And um, we, we can also help break down these barriers and encourage you know, a lot more open um, conversations around failure. And then secondly, we need to provide more resources and support for um, tech entrepreneurs who are struggling. This could include you know, mentorship, coaching, or access to funding and other resources. Um, and by providing these entrepreneurs with the support they need to recover from a failure, and to continue um, to pursue their goals, we can uh, help reduce the stigma around failure and create a more resilient and adaptive um, ecosystem. I think we also need to shift our mindsets around failure. It's a very important thing to do and view it as um, a necessary part of the learning process. Failure is not something to be ashamed of or avoided at all costs. Um, but rather it's an opportunity to learn, grow, and improve. And by embracing this mindset and encouraging others to do same, we can help to create a more positive and productive ecosystem for um, tech entrepreneurs in Ghana. What kind of safe spaces can we create? Because it's, it's obviously a wider societal issue in terms of our understanding and our appreciation of what it means to fail. And if it is going to, obviously it's going to take quite a lot more to shift mindsets about what it means to fail. So what kind of safe spaces can we actually create for people to be able to share those, those lessons? I mean, there was um, an advert on, on Twitter two days ago. Um, a colleague you know, got in touch with me and was like, well, I know these people, they've not done so well. How come they're on a panel? You know, obviously, yes, they might not have done so well, but then there are lessons to be picked up. But, and from the responses from Twitter, you could tell that, you know, people did side with that idea of if you run a business that didn't go so well, you don't have a place to come and tell me how to run my business. And so I'm not sure what kind of safe spaces are we, are we talking about? Because it's, it's, it looks more like a cultural shift that needs to happen. And I, I don't know if, I don't know how easy that would be for us to achieve. You are absolutely right, Philip. Um, it's, a, it's a cultural shift and mainly a mindset shift. And um, I think uh, when it comes to safe spaces, we are talking about any environment that um, tech entrepreneurs can come together to exchange ideas, to share their experiences, and uh, you receive support and guidance. We have some of these safe spaces um, available. And I, I, I like to believe that MEST is one of them. And a lot of these uh, spaces provide a supportive and non-judgmental atmosphere for entrepreneurs. At least they should. Um, examples are you know, incubators and accelerators um, that provide support and resources to startups, uh, such as mentorship, office spaces, funding co-working spaces that provide entrepreneurs with networking opportunities. Um, and then they also often have a community-focused atmosphere where other entrepreneurs can come in to collaborate and share ideas. There are also you know, business associations and organizations um, that provide uh, entrepreneurs with access to resources, events, and um, networking opportunities too. And then online communities. So um, I think we really need to leverage on these spaces to, first of all, make that mindset shift around failing because failing is inevitable. It's, it's part of the process and it helps you to learn and grow. And so why, you know, shame someone 
or leave someone out of a conversation for failing. It's part of the learning process and it could happen to anyone at all. Um, so we, we really need to be inclusive um, in, in these safe spaces and uh, continue to support our entrepreneurs. Melissa, it, some, some would argue that MEST is MEST will qualify potentially as a safe space for, for us to, to get a lot more of these um, um, technology entrepreneurs to, to share their, their stories. Is this something that is woven into the culture uh, at MEST? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of experimentation is, is at our heart, you know, it's at the root of everything we do. Um, and, and really that is what taking a business idea out and trying to reach your minimum valuable product is all about, right? You're testing an idea. Um, you test something out, you start with the hypothesis and you try to prove the hypothesis right or wrong. Um, and sometimes it's wrong, right? And I think it, it takes a certain kind of person. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of boldness. It takes a lot of curiosity to be an entrepreneur. So like, I, I also don't want to come with this thinking that being an entrepreneur is an easy thing. It's not, right? And sometimes you will fail and you will get back up and, and dust it off and try again. So I think creating safe space is important. Mess is definitely a safe space. I also think it's really important to just... Um, just just understand that this, I, I think it's a cultural thing for sure. And I'm really, I was really, really unpleased when you brought up that idea, Philip, of it being embedded in a larger culture of us always wanting to appear perfect or always wanting to put our best foot forward, which is, it can be a beautiful thing as well. But I think when it comes to business, when it comes to coming up with new innovative ideas, it's really all about breaking the mold, new thinking, new ways of doing things. And we really do um, embed that in everything we do at MESS, from the training program to how we invest in companies, to the type of companies we invest in. We, we take a really bold shot. And I think on, on our end, we are prepared to fail, in quote, end quote. We're very prepared to invest in a company and say that, okay, well, this investment, maybe the timing of this business was wrong. We, 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 we relish in that. Like, we don't find discomfort in that. And I think it's because we like the idea of really experimenting and testing out ideas. And we, we, we repeat it every day with our students, right? I think one of the things that creates a safe space is sharing a lot of knowledge about what it really does take to build a successful company. And you'll find that statistics will tell you that many of the companies that we all admire today were started by someone who used to call a failure, right? Many second and third time founders tend to be more successful than a first time founder. So that statistic will tell you that you kind of have to fail once or twice to really, you know, get to where you want to go. But I think it's just the angle in which you really decide to look at it. I, I definitely um, believe in creating safe spaces where people can feel free to create. But that I also want, you know, us to understand that this journey of being an entrepreneur is a tough one. Like I tell the companies I post that if, if to be an entrepreneur, you have to be likened to a mad person. Like you see a hill that's unsurmountable and you say, I'm going to scale that, right? To have that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, um, it, it comes with having a thick skin where you're ready to fail, right? And try again. And I think that's the most important part of it, that what happens after that failure, right? How do you get back up and try something else out? And I think um, that's one thing that we 
pride ourselves over at Mess, right? It's really encouraging entrepreneurs to just, you know, go out there, try new things, fail, fail forward, get up, try it again um, until we get it right. And I'm, I'm sure quite a number of the businesses who have been through Mess definitely have, have gotten it right at, at one point in time or the other. Do you think the situation is, or the phenomenon is exacerbated when it comes to female-led businesses? Well, I think the stakes are always higher when we're speaking of women. So <laughs> um, in terms of exacerbated, I'm not sure. But I think um, as a woman in society, like even put aside being an entrepreneur, there, there are so many requirements, right, of a woman, right, in society and personal life. And of course, as an entrepreneur. Um, and I think just, you know, the way the entrepreneurship field is today where women are getting what in Africa it's about maybe less than four percent of the funding that comes to Africa goes to women founders right so when you couple that statistic with the idea of nine out of ten startups fail the stakes are automatically higher right because we're getting less resources to do even more right and, and that, that, that's how I feel when it comes to women in a lot of different spheres of life um, but I think the advantage that women tend to have is this ability to fail forward and fast, right? Is having this ability to say, you know what, I'm going to courageously go out and try this out, this idea out. And I, I find that typically a lot of the women entrepreneurs I'm, you know, blessed to work with tend to be some of the most courageous people I've ever met, right? Um, so yes, I definitely think that sometimes, you know, depending on the angle, the lens you're using, the stakes can seem a little bit higher. Um, but I don't think that that's a deterrent, right? I actually think that that's something that really draws more women into entrepreneurship and especially into tech-led businesses. So with MESS, we run a training program and we, we focus on business skills, we focus on communication skills, and we focus on actual tech skills. So we do teach and train in coding. Now, with our training program that we run every year that is completely free, right? It's a totally 100% sponsored program we strive to have a class that's at least half female, right? And that's one of our mandates because we at MESS feel that it's really important for more women to get involved in the tech and the engineering space. Like I can tell you, as we're speaking, I have friends who are calling me like, Melissa, like, do you have any women coders? Like we're looking for some female coders. So in terms of the market, there is a huge demand for women in tech, right? It exists. Now, I think with, with, Every career choice a woman makes, she, she will weigh it against all of the other areas of her life, right? Women tend to be pillars of wherever they find themselves, like whether it's their family, whether it's their community. So a woman is always thinking, how do I balance this with everything else I'm responsible for? Now, why I specifically, particularly myself, love tech is I feel tech really enables a woman to expand her horizons beyond an office beyond the time zone and beyond one industry, right? Tech enables you to do that. And I've seen so many women in tech who are mothers, who are wives, who are community leaders be able to really excel, right? In a way that maybe a traditional or a more, I guess, common career path wouldn't have allowed her to at this time in her life, right? Or in this day and age. So for us, I think just really showing what's possible is really important to me. When we're coaching our women entrepreneurs, it's really talking about all the possibilities, right? It's really, for me, like if a woman comes to me and has a specific challenge, 
um, in addition to the coaching I would give to her, I would match her with an entrepreneur who has done it, right? I, I would match her with someone either in Ghana, in Nigeria, in SA, in Kenya, in Silicon Valley, who's doing it, right? And really create a support system or support network of women who can really just lean on each other. Um, and that's really important to us at Nest as well. I'll pause there in case there was um, a follow-up question for that. Sure. Let me let me just jump to Larissa now. So Larissa, um, in in your line of work and in your interactions and both you know in your personal practice and with the work that you you, you do Mastercard, um, walk us through you know those sort of moments where you know you you have you know a technology entrepreneur or an entrepreneur sitting in front of you, and you know she is obviously a woman going through the ups and downs of, of running a business and coming back to that conversation about equity and and giving giving everyone an opportunity. Once again, like I said, some people might see it as someone being, being given an advantage over another, but I just want to find out from you, you know, when those situations pop up, how do you even go about handling handling them? Thanks, Philip. So um, I just wanted to touch a bit on what Melissa was talking about um, in relation to women in tech, you know, facing additional challenges uh, when it comes to failure and not just failure, we risk taking as well. Um, women are often held to higher standards than men and are judged more harshly for failure. And they face a lot of discrimination and bias, which can make it more difficult for them to access the resources and support they need to bounce back from failure. And I think Melissa um, touched a lot more on that. Um, but additionally, women in tech often lack role models and mentors who can provide guidance and support as they navigate the challenges of entrepreneurship. And this, this makes it um, more difficult for them to take risks and to embrace failure as a learning experience. However, um, there are a number of initiatives and programs that are working to address these challenges and to create a more um, supportive and inclusive ecosystem for women in tech. And um, I mean, some of these uh, initiatives uh, provide a lot of access to resources and supports for uh, women in tech to be able to access uh, mentorship and coaching opportunities that can help reduce the barriers that prevent them from taking risks and bouncing back from failure. Um, I think it's also really important to celebrate and promote role models. And by doing so, um, you provide uh, role models as an inspiration for aspiring tech entrepreneurs who may be afraid of you know, taking that risk to start um, a tech business. And um, that's really what I'm, I'm doing with Levis in Heels to highlight the achievements of uh, not just women in tech, women in STEM, um, and then helping them, you know, break down cultural and societal barriers and create a more inclusive ecosystem when um, it comes to, to tech and STEM. Um, encouraging education and awareness. I think that's also something that's uh, being done through a lot of these initiatives and programs. Um, we need to raise more awareness about the reality of entrepreneurship and the importance of failing as a learning experience um, to help you know shift the culture around failure and risk taking and by educating women in tech about um, the challenges of uh, entrepreneurship and how to navigate failure 
we can help um, to create a more you know, supportive and innovative ecosystem. I think it's also really important and it's really good that a lot of these initiatives are creating networks of women in tech who can provide you know, a supportive community where women can share their experiences and provide um, advice and support each other as they navigate you know, the challenges of entrepreneurship. And um, yeah, this again goes on to, to help them build a more supportive and inclusive uh, tech ecosystem for, for women in Africa. One of the things that often comes up when um, I have conversations in, um, with tech entrepreneurs is this concept of faking it till you make it. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it because it seems like a very popular thing. And I, I don't know if, if it works. So I think the, the idea of faking it till you make it can be very controversial um, in, the, in tech business. and. It's important to consider both, you know, the potential benefits and risks. On um, on one hand, it can be a powerful motivator and can help entrepreneurs to build confidence to take risks. Um, by projecting a sense of confidence and competence, uh, entrepreneurs can inspire others to uh, believe in their vision and can attract funding and partnerships. Um, however, there are also risks associated with, you know, faking it so you make it in the tech business. And for example, if um, an entrepreneur misrepresents their skills or abilities, it can lead to disappointment or loss of credibility and legal liabilities. Additionally, if an entrepreneur overpromises or underdelivers, it can harm their reputation and the reputation of their business. So in general, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to be honest about you know, their skills, abilities, and accomplishments uh, while being confident and passionate about their vision for their business. It's, it's also important to acknowledge the challenges and risks associated with entrepreneurship and you know, being transparent with investors, partners, and customers about the state of um, uh, the business. And ultimately, while faking it so you make it can be a useful mindset in certain situations, it's important for uh, tech entrepreneurs to be honest and ethical in their interactions with, with others and to also prioritize building um, a sustainable and successful business over short-term gains or appearances. I appreciate that. Um, Melissa, I'm guessing that this has come up a number of times in conversations during your sessions. How do you... What do you say to your students? <laughs> so this is a good one. This is such a good one. Um, this is a good one. So th this concept of fake it till you make it, like I hear it in so many avenues of life. Like I'm not a proponent of it. Like I, I, I really am. I'm a smell, smell, like smell it while it's hot kind of person. Like I'm like, you know, deal with things as it's in your face. Um, so I don't believe in necessarily faking it till you make it in terms of how you present yourself, right? Because I think tech is actually one of the areas where there is no right presentation. Like you don't have to look a certain type of way to be viewed as successful in tech, right? So if I'm a banker, I'm suited up and I, you know, I have this flair, if I'm a lawyer, but tech is kind of really different, right? 
because I can meet a tech entrepreneur in a pair of flip-flops and sweats and he's running a billion-dollar business. But I think it's less about appearance and more about the tech itself. And when it comes to the tech, yes, I'm definitely on board of manual it until you can automate it. So simple example, right? If you take a company or that's that's like an Uber interesting concept. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> I like that. You know, and I, I'm gonna tell you why, because the thing with tech, right? All tech is, is an enabler, right? Tech looks at a problem in society and tries to see how we can use technology to better it. That's all it is. So the problem is the problem, which is, tech, is typically a manual problem, right? That you're trying to use tech to enhance. So I'll use Uber as an example, right? Which everyone pretty much knows how Uber works today, right? But if I was to tell people that when Uber first launched, there was no app, you would be like, huh? Like, how does that happen? So when Uber first started working, right? If I went into Uber and made a request on my phone, to me on the user side, it looks seamless, right? It looks like the tech is working. What was actually happening on the back end is there was somebody in an office picking up a phone, calling a driver saying, hey, we have a pickup here, get there now, right? And they did this to really just understand the user, to understand how the app has to work as they continue to develop the tech on the back end, right? So for the first couple of months, it was people on the phone calling cars, calling drivers to get where they had to go. But faking it in that way brought learning to develop the tech right? And now the tech is working. And when I put in a request, it goes straight to a driver's phone and he comes to me. And many businesses, many tech businesses have to do that, right? You have to do things manually while you figure out kind of the tech part of it. And in that instance, I, 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 I'm a supporter of that, but I think that you have to be very, very clear on two things. So I think Larissa brought up the issue of being ethical, which I think it always has to run through the fabric of your business. The other side of it is don't get too comfortable in the faking it. I've also seen businesses who get so comfortable in doing things in a manual way that they forget the fact that our whole point was to use tech to make this more efficient. So I think even if you're going to fake it, be very um, conservative, right? And be very controlled in the way you do it. Let's understand that for the next month, just to get us off the ground, we're going to do things in this way until we're able to deploy this new feature. So let it be part of the plan as opposed to it kind of just being a, you know, a sidestep um, strategy, right? So that that's what I would say about faking it so you make it. Yeah, and, and just, um, to add, just to add um, quickly, really quickly to what Melissa said, let me look at the example of Theranos, um, the founder and CEO of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, um, who claimed that uh, this company um, had developed um, a blood testing technology that could perform hundreds of tests with just a few drops of blood. And then it was later revealed that the technology was flawed and inaccurate. I think the case of Theranos highlights the risks and potential consequences of you know, faking it till you make it in the tech industry. And uh, more importantly, it underscores the significance of transparency, honesty, and um, ethical behavior in, in tech entrepreneurship. Thank you. Thank you both um, um, so much. I'm, I'm just going to um, wrap it up now, but I wanted to wrap up on a very important part of um, the conversation of running a business, which is, is, is salaries and remuneration and whatever it is you choose to call it. There's obviously a, a huge challenge 
you know, with gender pay and everything else. And I just wanted your thoughts about it, both of you. So I'm just going to start off with Larissa and then um, I'll take a closing comment from, from, from Melissa. So the thing about, you know, salaries and payments and um, equal pay and, and everything else has obviously, you know, been an issue we've had a lot of back and forth about over the years. How how are we doing in Ghana, um, especially within within the the tech ecosystem? And is it getting any better? Is it going to get any better? Your your, your thoughts on that? Okay, so I think um, salaries and tech businesses um, in in Ghana and across Africa can vary depending on a number of factors, um, such as location, job role, company size, uh, level of experience. But in general, um, salaries in the tech industry uh, from where, where we are from tend to be a lot lower than those in uh, Europe or North America, but can still be competitive in, in local markets. And um, when it comes to gender pay in the tech industry um, in, in Africa, there is I think there's enough evidence to suggest that women in tech are often paid less than their male counterparts. And uh, this is due to you know, a number of factors, including unconscious bias, um, lack of negotiation skills, discrimination. And in addition, um, women in tech often face barriers to career advancement, and um, they may be underrepresented in senior leadership roles, which can you know, further contribute to gender pay disparities. So um, to address gender pay um, issues in the tech industry um, and in Ghana, uh, companies and organizations need to take a number of steps, um, which include um, conducting pay equity audits to identify and address any gender pay gaps within the organization. Um, they can also implement you know, transparent salary structures and um, pay skills to ensure that all employees are, are paid fairly and equitably. Uh, they can also provide training and support to women in tech. I think that's very important to improve their negotiation skills and empower them to advocate for fair pay. And then uh, there, there's a need to also promote diversity and inclusion in hiring and you know, promotion practices to ensure that women and other underrepresented groups have equal opportunities to advance in their careers. And I believe by you know, taking these steps and more, um, companies and organizations in the tech industry in Africa um, can help to create a more equitable and inclusive um, environment for, for women um, and uh, you know, for other demographic uh, uh, regardless of their de demographic factors. Melissa? So once again, my co-panelist Larissa has literally hit the nail on the head, um, but I will just, I'll build on just two quick points. Um, just around, and I, let me, I'm gonna focus on negotiation. I just wanna focus there and I'll just, I'll bring another stat up just so we understand that this is a global phenomenon, right? So statistics show that 4.5 out of five men negotiate their their contract one out of five women would negotiate her contract right so globally there there's this trend of women not negotiating right not asking for what they think they deserve 
Um, and again, Philip, right, if I'll come back to our conversation on failure, I think a lot of this is also culturally rooted as well, right? Um, on what it means to be a woman, right? What it means to be a good negotiator, what it means to be forceful. Um, and, and I'm gonna go back to what Larissa said about really providing women with the tools, the tips and the support to negotiate, because I think that's the first step, right? Is that it's for women to feel that I have the power to say, no, this is what I think I deserve. So even if there's a pay scale, right, in an organization, you're getting paid based on your negotiation. So if you don't negotiate at all, the conversation's not even open. Um, and, and there are many reasons why women don't negotiate, right? But I think that it, it's really about a cultural shift. I think it's really about having the support networks and the training to understand how to negotiate um, in a successful way that, you know, you still feel you're able to maintain your femininity or your integrity. Um, but I think that it, it really, that's the cusp of it. I think transparent salary is great. I think all of that is wonderful. But I think when it comes to the point where you're either negotiating a raise or you're negotiating some type of shift in the career, it still comes back to that ability to have the conversation, right? To be comfortable, to ask for what you think you deserve. So I think that's one thing that I'm, I'm very um, passionate about when I'm coaching my mentees is how to ask for what you deserve. I mean, I think that if we're able to do that, I think if we're able to form more tight support systems of both men and women who are advocating um, for women's equity, especially in terms of pay, I think we'll, we'll go a long way. Yeah, and, and just to add to, to that, I think like Melissa touched on, um, women in, in, in Africa or in Ghana um, may be socialized to be less assertive and more differential. And this makes it more difficult for them to negotiate for you know, benefits and for you know, higher salaries. And I think it's also important I highlight this, that women in tech may also face uh, reprisals from their employers or their colleagues if they attempt to even negotiate for higher salaries. And this is something that I've seen a lot. They worry that they will be viewed as difficult or pushy and that their requests will be dismissed outright. And I think this is something that really needs to change in a lot of our, our tech um, organizations and companies. And that is where we draw the curtain down on the show today. I, I do hope you have enjoyed the conversation so far. But remember that City Trends is sponsored by ALX Africa. And of course, you don't need me to tell you, but the job market is changing rapidly. And one in every three jobs is tech-related today. But question is, are you ready for the workforce of the future? Well, in partnership with MasterCard Foundation, ALX is bringing you fully funded programs in software engineering courses data science, data analysis, Salesforce administrator, and AWS cloud practitioner. Start your journey within the tech space by visiting alxafrica.com. And of course, to harness the brightest female minds as we kick start, you know, the International Women's Day and of course, International Women's Month as some like to celebrate it on the continent. Well, this soft engineering cohort is opening to only female applicants at this time. 
applications are being welcomed right now so make sure you visit alxafrica.com and send through your application